We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, the, the black food that I grew up with really drew from kind of some of what we associate as classic southern cuisine, right? So sweet potato pie. I don't even think I knew what a pumpkin pie was until I moved to the East Coast. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. On today's show, I'm speaking with Don Davis, the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit. Now, I've wanted to have Don on the program for years because I've just admired her career, not just at BA, but previously as a book editor. This is such a great conversation. We talk about some of the cool things she's been working on at BA, this really great travel issue that she just put out featuring stories from Piemonte, Coachella Valley, and Andy Barigani's travels. I, I think BA is looking better than ever. But then we talk about what's in Don's kitchen, what she's been making for friends, and what Don's flex dinner is. It's a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Don Davis, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you here. I've wanted to have you in for a long time because I've been reading Bon Appetit. Bon Appetit, we'll call it both. I'm sorry. We don't need to go in there. Both work. Both work. I wanted to ask you first off, when you took over BA, um, you know, what was your vision for the modern home cook? Because I think we think of it a lot at Taste when we're editing our pages. Um, you know, how do we address this wide audience of different home cooks in different locations and different backgrounds? So when you when you started kind of assembling your initial issues, how did you define that that new home cook? Well, of course, we were coming, uh, we were still in the pandemic. And so the home cook is varied, as you alluded to. Some people have been putting, you know, five meals a week on the table for years. You know, some people like working moms like myself are looking for quick but tasty and healthy meals. Some people want to do extravagant, you know, what you call the flex meal, (laughs) you know, a couple times a week. So I had to acknowledge that diversity. There's geographic diversity where different ingredients are available. So what I really look for is a mix. We have a section called family meal, which are meant to be the meals for every day. And then we might bring in a chef Mm -hmm. who might, you know, give you a little extra, you know, it's going to have extra oomph on the table, but you might have to source, be more strategic about sourcing, be more strategic about, you know, the time that you need. But really we're focusing on the person who loves to get in the kitchen, you know, uh, get busy and challenge themselves, but also have food that's delicious and accessible at the end of the day. Well, we'll get to the flex meal soon, or your flex meal, that is. But I wanted to really get into this moving target of the audience because I feel like you uh, you have so many different readers. Um, are you seeing right now, while you're constructing these new issues going into the fall, are you seeing any, I don't like to say trends, but are you seeing any impulses as we exit the pandemic in terms of home cooking? Well, we know that people love seasonality. That's what we're hearing from our readers. Yeah. Um, I started something where I want to kind of intention, be intentional about methodology. I think we assume that people know what 
you know, pan fry is versus saute. So we are like last fall, we did the braise, the art of the braise. What is it? How does it different from poaching, et cetera? So I'm trying to be strategic about, you know, uh, a diverse set of recipes within each issue, but maybe also teach the novice something, refresh someone who's been doing it for years. It's kind of like yoga. You may know how to do a pose because you've been doing it for years, but it doesn't mean you're always doing it correctly, right? And so we really try to acknowledge that we have a multiplicity of readers and what we want you to walk away with at least five recipes that are going to be on repeat. Basically. So, in, Don, thank you for saying that. You're, I'm so into quick learning, and we we think about that taste as well. It's like you don't want – it's not just about the recipe and the head note. It is about extracting those five tips out of each issue. And I have to say the back of the book, the recipes for BA have always been so well tested. So you yes. know you're going to get actually a good dish, but you're going to learn a little bit with it, right? Yeah, it's one of the things that really distinguishes Bon Appetit is that we do – and, you know, we do test these recipes. And it's fun – you know, now that we're all back in the office yeah. is I get to go up from time to time and taste it and then see their notes, you yeah. know, less cumin, more salt, uh, you know, try cooking, sauteing for three minutes instead of five. So it's really interesting. A lot of thought goes into it. Well, it goes without saying I'm a huge fan of BA, what you and Sonia, now Anna, who used to be here, and a bunch of other folks that I love are doing at BA and Epicurious. So I, I have to say that I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank you. And a big shout out to all the, the team in the test kitchen, yeah. Chris, led by Chris Morocco. Chris, right. We just brought Hannah Asbring into it as well. and Yes, uh, writer of taste. Great, great yes. call there. Hannah's and, amazing. And Christine Che. We have just so many interesting uh, people in the test kitchen who bring their passions, their backgrounds, their culinary backgrounds uh, to bear. So I, I'm loving what we're turning out right now. What was it like joining Condé? I, I just finished Dana Brown's uh, book, <coughs> Dilettante, which he, he worked at Vanity Fair for 28 years and writes about the 90s, which was a very different time. But what's it like going from book publishing? We will get into your background, which was years in book publishing. What was it like making that transition to the magazine, the 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 always on, you know, like it's not just the twelve, the fourteen issues. It's it's like the the digital content, all that stuff. What was that like? Ooh, that that's a good question. <laughs> totally difficult. It, yeah. you know, they both are in media. They both, we both, both book publishing and magazine publishing. You're working with writers, but they could not be more different. <laughs> I think it's a little bit like being an actor um, in a play versus television, right? I love the ideas and the generation of ideas. That's still my favorite. You know, the editorial meeting is still my favorite part. That's part of the day. Everything else is different. You know, audience development, subscription. As you know, we just launched a paywall. Um, We're a brand. We have video. We have podcasts. So also thinking about how you can take one idea and, and publish it across platforms has been super interesting. But honestly... Book publishing and magazine publishing could not be more different from my perspective. Oh, my God. From the editorial side, like, like just thinking about KPIs and, oh, God, that heinous word. <laughs> I don't even think in book publishing I'd even heard KPIs. Of course You not. know, <laughs> we heard bestsellers and yeah. author care. Yeah. But, yeah, totally different. Different. But I want to get your uh, kind of like more of your background because I know you grew up in L.A., amazing food city, then and now. But first, what were cookbooks like um, <clears throat> for you growing up? So that's another interesting question because I have to say I did not grow up in a home with a lot of cookbooks. My mother and my uh, my mother Leona and my aunt Stella were 
the cooks of the family, and they cooked for uncles and cousins and neighbors. But they were really intuitive cooks, and they brought their Afro-Italian roots to bear, as well as they drew. They also um, took inspiration from the food of Southern California, which included Mexican cuisine. Mm-hmm. And also, as we know from reading the great book that was actually published by Random House, where we're sitting, Warmth of Other Suns, the Great Migration, African-Americans left the Deep South and either went to the Midwest, the Atlantic seaboard, or they went to uh, California. And a lot of folks from Louisiana went to California. So we had a lot of kind of Creole influences in our food from friends and neighbors. And so they just cooked, you know, they went to the local supermarket and they made fantastic food. It might be tacos one day. It might be pasta the next. Although I don't think we called it pasta in my house. I think we just called it spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, They would cook uh, maybe gumbo on Fridays. So it was really, really fantastic. But it wasn't inspired by cookbooks. I mean, my mom watched Julia Child from time to time. And I think there was a Betty Crocker book in the house. But she would read that, look at it, and then do her own thing. That linkage from the Creole from from like Louisiana to Southern California, I mean, it's touched upon in in the new Kevin Bledsoe book. It's definitely um, something that black food in Southern California has its real identity. And I think there is scholarship coming out and books being published that that identify it. Um, You bring up a great point. Are there any dishes that you would say really crystallized um, the black food experience in Southern California that you grew up eating, um, that you grew up eating in restaurants? I mean, you mentioned, of course, the diaspora of, of, of Mexico there, and that's a big part of L.A., but let's talk about the black food culture there. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, the, the black food that I grew up with really drew from kind of some of what we associate as classic Southern cuisine, right? So yeah. sweet potato pie. I don't even think I knew what a pumpkin pie was until I moved to the East Coast, right? Greens, uh, ribs, chicken, baked chicken on Sundays. It's funny. I took my sons to, as you know, I spent some time in Cape Cod in the summer. Yeah. And we walked into uh, a party uh, that someone was throwing and my son's looked around and they're like, it's just like Aunt Stella's, right? It had the the black eyed peas and the greens and the all, you know, the more the merrier. So I really think of it as drawing from uh, those Southern traditions and every household, every mama has their own seasoning, their own way of doing things. Amazing story. I'm, I'm thinking of sweet potato pie. And I think in my history, I grew up in the Midwest. I think the first time I ever heard about sweet potato pie was literally from Warren G. Warren G had a song about sweet potato pie from like 1992. (laughs) I swear, and this is like kind of connecting it for me a little I bit. I love that. I yeah. love that. Um, it's let- funny, actually, as a book publisher, one of the last books I acquired and edited and saw through was a fantastic book called The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I loved so much about that book. You know, uh, there was an allusion to this great song, To Sir With Love. At yeah. one point, I love that song. At one point, the the main character moves from the Midwest to New York, and at one point, she's craving her mom's sweet potato pie. Oh, yeah. And I so 
I had every intention to acquire this book, and I knew it would be competitive. And for the author meeting, I literally brought in my mother's sweet potato pie. Ace in the hole. Ace in the hole. Let's just say I won that auction. Yes. I would stop at nothing for that book. I love it. Let's talk about your book publishing history. You said before we went on, Mike, you have about 30 years of experience for a BA. It's an extraordinary career. And I would like to hear specifically some of the cookbooks that you worked on in your in your in your career at Simon and Schuster prior to to BA, so it's funny. I one of the first books I actually started at a small press called the New Press, yeah. run by the legendary Andre Schifrin, right. who oh, was man. really fantastic. And basically, though I was his assistant, literally typing his memos, he also gave me immediately uh, empowered me to go and start acquiring. And I'm not exactly sure how I encountered the proposal for a book by Victor Val and Mary Lauval called called Recipe of Memory, a book by Victor Val and Mary Lauval called Recipe of Memory, Five Generations of Mexican-American Cuisine. And uh, he basically inherited this chest and he went through it and there were recipes and mementos and he really, using that um, with recipes, but really explored how cuisine travels from border to from yeah. country to country, across borders, et cetera. And that was my first cookbook, one of the first books I'd ever acquired. And it was nominated for, I believe, two Julia Child Internet IACP Awards and a James Beard Award, my which gosh. was super inspiring. Um, the New Press wasn't a cookbook publisher. Definitely we, not. It's not they, we weren't a cookbook publisher, yeah. but we were targeting underexplored cultures, cultures that hadn't been uh, published and explored in the mainstream media. So that fit that mission, but we weren't doing a lot of cookbooks per se. So I didn't really acquire another cookbook um, until I acquired at the end, uh, you know, of, of that phase of my book publishing career, Nicole Taylor's Watermelon and Redbirds, a celebration of Juneteenth and other kind of happy occasions in, in yeah. the black experience. And, you know, one of the things that Nicole said is there's so much emphasis on the trouble and the struggle in black life that we don't we don't talk enough about the celebration and the joy. And so this book is meant to provide menus and food and inspiration for what to put on the table for those joyous occasions. And I acquired it uh, and I loved it. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to say, though I didn't get to see that book all the way to the end because I took the the job at Bon Appetit, I did excerpt it in our June-July issue, which is coming out any minute. It's a beautiful book. I mean, Watermelons and Redbirds, definitely check it out. I'll link to it in the show notes. And I think, let's go back just to that initial time when you were editing that book back at the New Press. What was it like editing a book then? I mean, was it, were you doing actual recipe development with the authors? Like, what was that? So young in your career, it's like a big, like to be thrown a cookbook seems like a big task. What I remember, we must have, you know, uh, delegated the testing to, you know, um, we must have had the authors test the recipes. What I remember is that the balance of illustration, recipe, content was something that I really had to focus on. Unlike a straight, say, memoir or narrative nonfiction book, you have to account for sidebars and 
how to illustrate the food, what should the headnotes say. And also this was more than just a collection of recipes. It was also really meant to talk about culture and how recipes can transmit culture. And I know some cookbooks focus on that more than others, but that was definitely the focus. And this is like ahead of its time. I mean, what year are we talking about here? Gosh, yeah, this yeah. must have been 1992 yeah. maybe. Yeah, Mine's, yeah. it's a very early um, book for that that kind of point of view, which is now quite common, but really wasn't in the early 90s. Yeah, which is why when, you know, the opportunity came to work with a talented team at Bon Appetit, I was like, you know, in some ways I've been thinking about these issues for decades. I think about them, uh, whether it's through fiction, narrative nonfiction, whether it's through culinary. I had, of course, I think, you know, myself, I wrote a cookbook. It wasn't so much well, how should I say this? I wrote a book in which I interviewed tons of chefs and restaurateurs, caterers, people in the industry, and got them to talk about you know their journey to the industry and then opine yeah. on different aspects. Do you need to go to culinary school or mm-hmm. do you learn on the job, et cetera, those kinds of questions. And I collected recipes along the way. I had everyone uh, send me a recipe or I went through their cookbooks and selected a recipe. And then I did the testing myself, which was very, very fun. Usually they had a recipe that had been published and I just got to pick my favorite and I got to do a lot of cooking in order to arrive at my favorite. Yeah. Working on an anthology cookbook like that is a real dream. I feel being able to pull voices from all over. Do you have a recipe that comes to mind from that book that you really just go back to as as a home cook? Oh, yeah, that's a really good Putting question. Putting you on the spot here. I yeah, know. my mom loves Edna Lewis's corn pudding, which yeah. is in that book. There's a, a delicious cold fruit soup, which uh, I believe Pat Williams, a chef, a woman chef, and that was one of the things I also wanted to explore, why right. are there so few women in the business? And again, this was back in early 90s. Right. She did a really, she does a really delicious fruit soup. Michael McCarthy's gazpacho is one of my go-tos. Yeah. So yeah, I cook from it a lot. It's a cool uh, memory. I, I, I want to segue to the May issue of, of BA, uh, a travel issue. And I think these are really hard to to pull together, particularly during a pandemic. So I, I, I love the issue. I mean, you, It's the April issue. Our oh, travel issue was April. Okay, great. April issue. You can definitely check it out. You go to Piemonte, Coachella Valley, and, and have a great piece about dates. You, Andy Baragani's in there talking about his world travel. How do you think about tra- f- traveling for food right now? I, I think you've really clued into something we talk about on the Taste Podcast a lot. Yeah, so first of all, it's hard right now because we – don't know what's going to be happening with COVID, right? So we had to, and as you know, in magazines, we work so far in advance. So we were probably planning the April issue as early as December. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is COVID going to be like in April and what are people's attitudes about traveling going to be like? But one of the things that we have to balance is we want to be aspirational in terms of the travel. We want to be insp- We want to inspire you to travel, whether that's armchair or literally getting yeah. on a plane. But we also have to bring recipes into the mix. And so with this fantastic editorial team uh, that I have, we, we brainstormed. The team was really excited about Rebecca Pepler, yeah. who is a cookbook writer. She lives in Paris. And so they, with so much enthusiasm, I heard from multiple people on the team that they wanted, uh, you know, Rebecca. I love Resdora. Stefano Secchi's restaurant in the Flat Iron. Such a good restaurant. I love that place. Such good food. And, you know, he's very passionate about Piedmont and also Sardinia, actually. So um, we talked to him about his 
favorite places? Would he like to share them yeah. with the Bon Appetit readers? And he does. He gives us the trattorias, mm-hmm. the wine bars, all the special places that you should go. And then he also provides recipes. So really, um, and then we wanted some domestic places as well for people who weren't ready to travel um, internationally. And uh, Zainab Isa, a food uh, who works in the test kitchen on our team, and our art director, actually, were passionate about a date farmer in the Coachella Valley. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've been going to uh, the Palm Springs area for years, and I really learned something about the Coachella Valley there. So, you know, I want the reader to learn something while they're reading Bon Appetit. I want them to find, you know, recipes. I, I've developed this motto with the team. We want you to have inspiration for what to put on the table and what to talk about it around the table. And I think that that issue delivers. On it, it does deliver. I love it. I love that you've clued into the Coachella Valley. Have you ever had pie at Billy Reed's in Palm Springs? I have to put you on. No. Oh, it's. I need to do this. It's like it's like from 1973. It's like an old classic American style restaurant with like freshly baked pies from this lovely man named Billy Reed. It's right on East Palm Canyon. I love that place. I got to do that. Make sure we get <laughs> put that in the show I'll notes text, and then also make sure I I'll get that. I would info. love that. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, I go to uh, Martha's Vineyard yeah. and there is also a fabulous, I don't even know if it has a name. It just says pies and it's on nice. State Road and you go, you, you see what she has, you buy them and then, you know, you always have guests and those pies are gone within, you know three hours. Oh my gosh, you have to line up for those, I bet. Let's talk about what you cook at home because I want to get into that and then get a little bit more into like your restaurant culture because I think that's a big part of BA where you're dining out. But like right now you're very busy, you're running a magazine, you're running websites. How do you think about dinner, um, you know, at four o'clock when you don't have dinner planned? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I am that person. You know, there's some people, my best friend, Courtney, she will literally sit home on Sunday and for years she was using Bon Appetit actually and just picked recipes and then would go shopping for the entire week. I have never been that I don't that know who person. those people are. I have never been that person. <laughs> I literally at four o'clock think what's for dinner. Sure. But we're so lucky in New York. So I, I yeah. work next to Italy. Yeah. I live next to Chelsea Market and a D'Agostino. I can kind of figure it out. Uh, so I just look for inspiration, um, obviously on our website or I'll, you know, what am I craving? What will my kids eat? What will my husband eat? And I just, I pick recipes. So you just pick them like they look good. They look like they're doable. What's, what's better, good or doable? (laughs) It's a weird question. Oh, they have to be both. Right. You know, so the other night I made, uh, My mom is visiting and she loves when I make fish for her. It's something that she doesn't really make for herself so much. She'll make a, she'll bake salmon, but I'll do something a little bit more interesting. Yeah, sure. So uh, we have this great recipe for something called crispy salmon with tomatilla salsa. Yeah. I knew she'd love that. I don't like salmon as much. So I used Arctic char, which was great. Um, If it's cold, I always will have a soup in the house. One of my favorites right now, I mean, it's going to be 90 on Saturday, so I'm afraid the soup, I have to retire it for the season, but <laughs> Matthew Rayford did a um, chicken and rice stew, which I've kind of made more of a soup, but used his his flavors. Amazing. So yeah, I just, I look for, you know, what am I feeling? Am I feeling pasta, noodles, yeah. protein, chicken? I love Andy Baragani's recipes. Sometimes I'll just Google you know, a name that I know on the yeah. website or I'll go to Bon Appetit and say Andy Baragani chicken and something will come up and I know it will be good and, and I go from there. Yeah, Andy and Carla are both uh, like names I always know that recipes are going to work. I love those two recipes. And writers. don't sleep on Chris Morocco. I yeah, mean, definitely his, not. his recipes are always also, if I see he's 
if he's developed it, I know it's going to be easy and delicious. I also think soup, you can have it when it's 90. I'm just, I, I personally am okay with it, like year round. I think soup is amazing. I love soup, but I like cold soups when it gets really hot. That gazpacho, I'm thinking, like, I'm going to ask you about what that recipe is because it sounds like you have one. I do, and I also love—I like to do this when I throw a dinner party almost as a kind of palate cleanser, but I puree a melon. I think this is a Deborah—it's borrowed from Deborah Madison, but I puree a melon, usually like a honeydew, um, some ginger, some basil, some mint, a little salt— and coconut milk, and you just put it in the refrigerator, and it is so refreshing. So, yes, on a super hot day, I love a cold soup. So you just, like, chop it up, uh, cube it up, and then you go in, like, a standard blender of Vitamix. You just go—and and what's the consistency then? What's the texture? It's it's like soup. Yeah. And yeah. I tend to add a little less coconut milk than any yeah. recipe actually calls for. Yeah. But it's super delicious. Aromatic. Um, it, it just is— it's a palate cleanser, but also like super tasty. I love it. It sounds great. I'm, you're inspiring me. I'm going to go reach for a melon right now this, this weekend. Let's talk about the flex. I alluded to it earlier on. So the flex is this idea that, you know, you're having a dinner party and you want to show off that you actually know a little bit about cooking to your guests. Ooh. What do you, where, what do, you do, Don? What, like, what's, your, what's your go-to like flex dinner party? Yeah, so the last time, I, what I like to do is um, feed my friends and have them over. I would say the last time I flexed where I thought this is going to take a while and I'm going to have to go. For me, a flex is something where you have to go to multiple stores, right? You want the fish from Lobster Place. Yep. You want the the chicken or, you know, the cut of meat from Dixon's Farms, the meat market. That to me is the flex more so than the actual meal. But the last time I really flexed was we have a... Um, Rachel Gurjar is in our test kitchen, and she has this recipe for braised short ribs with onions and curry leaves. And honestly, I had to go to different shops to get, you know, the fresh curry leaves, I the coconut. I, it, was, it was a minute, but it was so delicious. It made the house smell so good. And I think it said to my friends, I put a lot of time and effort and care yeah. into this, and I love you. And, uh, you know— this is how I'm ex- I'm expressing it. It's today. your love language to go to Dixon's and buy like a beautiful short rib or five. Oh my god, yes, <laughs> I, yes, yes, yes. I just did a lamb for Easter dinner. Nice. That was a bit of my. We have from the April issue, Rebecca Pepler's seven hour braised leg of lamb. Actually, so super easy because you just braise it for five hours, really, depending on the size and all the ingredients you have in your kitchen already. But that was my last time I went to Dixon and, mm-hmm. you know, bought a beautiful cut of meat. Yeah, Jay Dixon, shout out. I, I have to say, I like the art direction of that, that Paris piece, too. It, it's beautiful. It's really well shot. Yes, that's nice. our new creative director. Donald, let's, let's shout, shout her out. Yes, that's our new creative director who started about three, about four issues ago, Arsh Razudin. She's amazing. And looks great. the team she's assembled is amazing as well. Magazine looks great. I want to know where you're dining out because BA, which makes BA a great magazine and also makes it challenging to edit, I'm sure, is that you're splitting the difference between home cooking but also where you're going. You have a Best New Chefs or something like that, a Best Restaurants of the Year. So, like, where are you dining out right now? Yeah, it's funny. We are just finishing our reporting on – we do have – we call it the Hot 10. That's what it's 
traditionally been called. Um, and we just finished the reporting on that. It's our October issue. Cool. And our team goes all over the country. So it's, it's you know, hard. Uh, and that 10 draws from a bigger list of 50. And then we narrow it down. With the two children that I am parenting along with my husband, I mostly dine in New York unless I'm traveling um, for fun or, or with the family. But I'm loving Zuzu right now. I've just, I had already mentioned Resdora. Um, I don't know if you know the Bon Appetit community, you know Andre Mack, who is our wine guru. Yeah. And he has a wine bar in Brooklyn called, it's a ham bar actually called Ann Sons, which I'm really loving. Coat is always fun for a mm-hmm. night out if you're craving a perfectly cooked steak. Um, I think Four Horsemen is still great. Yeah, almost a decade in, it's definitely one of the go-tos. It's Absolutely. just like so, so, so fantastic. And my team is talking about... Um, Laser Wolf, that's Oh, one. <laughs> Michael Solomonov, yeah. Yeah. Rooftop, so yeah. That's one that they're loving. Everyone's at Laser Wolf these days. I, I haven't made it out, but that PETA is still the best on the East Coast, I have to say. Evidently, um, last week when the team went, there were a lot, you know, Dana Cowan was in, <laughs> um, Yotam was in, uh, just- a, Ruth was in. Ruth was in. Yeah, yes, I saw that. Exactly. I saw all that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. great. I think New York is super back and I love seeing it. Um, we asked all guests in the Taste podcast- uh, if there was a dream book project for you to work on without budget or deadline, you know this better than anyone. You you edit books. Don, what would that book project be? The book project or the magazine project? Ooh, I'm, I'm, so we typically ask this question as a book question because, you know, we're here seated in a book uh, place. So we're thinking cookbook. But if you want to talk about a magazine issue, I'm cool with that, too. There are no hard rules here. Okay, okay. So – one of the things that I thought would be real, this is the thing that I would love to do. I read that Barilla, the pasta, you know, we usually get the pasta in our pasta aisle, has one of the largest cookbook collections and books about gastronomy in the world. I think they have over 15,000 books. Wow. So in my dream project, I would have an issue um, where we'd let people like, you know, like Ruth Reichel, um, Jessica Hare. I'd let like all these food minds into that library, let them get inspired, pull recipes that are based on something in in one of the volumes that they see. And then we'd publish that, you know, collection of recipes in Bon Appetit, Stanley Tucci, Samin Nosrat, you know, um, anyone who loves and is inspired by uh, Italian food. That's what I'd want. That's cool. So you're like lost in the book library. Lost in the book library. Yeah, yeah. And then we take, you know, subscribers, lucky subscribers would go. Maybe we'd draw names and we'd all go and sit in the Barilla, you know, which is in Parma, if I'm not mistaken. And we'd all eat some delicious meals prepared by these amazing people. Huh. Hey, that sounds like it might happen. I was going to say. <laughs> I was like, I want to do that. Yeah, it sounds great. Yes, chef. Don Davis, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Hannah Raskin, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. You know, I've been a huge fan of your work. You've written a little bit. For Punch when I was editing there. I don't think you've written for Taste, though. Is that right? I have not. Well, I mean... Should I pitch you right now? <laughs> you know what? Another time, I would love to have you on Taste. But you're, you're, you're pretty busy, I would say, right now. I wanted to get into the, the food section because 
you know, it's it's an extremely important conversation we're going to have about independent journalism and food. Um, and I will write nice things in the intro, but I just have to stress that I love the food section and I love what you're doing with it. But first, before we do get into that, I want to get a little bit of your background as a journalist. Where do you work? Where do you live? And what have you covered? Sure. So as you said, I'm currently editing and publishing the food section, which is a twice weekly newsletter covering food and drink across the American South. But previously, I was a food editor at the Post and Courier here in Charleston, South Carolina, where I still live. I was there for nearly a decade handling all of their food coverage. Um, prior to that, I did similar work for, at the time, I think it was Village Voice Media, whatever the amalgam of New Times Village Voice was, working at their um, publications in Dallas and then Seattle. Wow. So you were on the ground in Dallas and Seattle before you landed in Charleston. My goodness, I had no idea. Yeah, although that was sort of a short period of time preceded by uh, another almost 10 years in Asheville, North Carolina, which is where I did my first like real paid food writing work. Wow, so. 10 years in Asheville. What a co- Asheville yeah. has changed a lot over this period. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, it's changed. I mean, that's why I was sort of their first food person at the Alt Weekly there because prior to that, they didn't have enough restaurants to merit one, which is crazy. Crazy to, to think now. about that. But now Asheville is quite yeah. the city. Um, yeah. well, let's talk about your time at Charleston. You were You were handling... Everything as the editor um, of the of the, the the daily paper, the food section. What was the work like exactly? Uh, a lot of it. I mean, it was you know everyone's heard about what's going on in Charleston, so there was plenty to cover. Um, you know, people who live here are avid eaters. Obviously, we have tourists coming in you know on a daily basis, so there was plenty to do both in terms of criticism and true reporting, which was a big part of my work. So, were you actually reviewing as well as editing? Yeah. Yep. Yep. You say that yeah, casually, that's like normal. that's a normal thing. I feel like yeah. <laughs> nobody really does that as much. So, what was that like being both the critic and the editor of the section? Uh, you know, it's a little tricky, obviously, um, because you're if you're the critic, you're always seen as the critic. Um, but I don't know if that's entirely wrong. I mean, I think my mission at the paper was to make was to help our readers be more informed eaters and to appreciate their dining experiences right so i think whether you're doing that through straight up reporting or you know more of a restaurant review either way it's all kind of the same piece i'm with you with that actually now that we've talked it through a little bit i am with you i think that being um i've been a little bit of both at some roles i have been a restaurant critic in the past and i think if you serve your readers fairly and honestly you're you're actually serving them well if you're actually assigning features in addition to going out and eating out every night. Right. I mean, I was assigning those features to me, but <laughs> it was just wow. So you didn't really have yeah. many freelancers at the time. No, I had nobody. It was just, just you running. So okay, this yeah. is great setup because what it sets up is this idea um, that you've gone from more of a traditional food media job. Um, running the food section of a, of a daily newspaper in Charleston to running your own Substack called the food section, which again, great read, got to subscribe link, a link to it in the show notes. So I wanted to know, like, what's the inflection point that has you leaving this job as the critic and editor of a daily food section to running a Substack? 
Yeah. So in, in in many ways, the work I'm doing is very similar. And I, I mean, I called it the food section in parks. I was like, it's the work I do for the food section. Like, I didn't have to change what I call it. Uh, I'm still like working too hard and for too little money, just like if I was at a local paper. But the reason I left or the reason I had considered leaving was one, I knew that although the Post and Courier is a fantastic paper, one of you know the best local papers in the country, no doubt, um, my reach and resources were always going to be limited if I was there. And that was a concern for me because I knew that most people who were subscribing to the paper were subscribing for food coverage. And so because of that, all of my work was locked up for paid subscribers. And so I, there were so many people I wasn't able to reach. Um, you know, like I said, resources were slim. And really what drove it home for me was covering the pandemic, um, which for me was was full-on reporting. I didn't do any reviews during the pandemic because South Carolina never shut down. Um, and so because of that, I didn't think it was in the public interest to review restaurants, uh, but that's a whole other conversation. So doing reporting and getting these calls from workers, primarily diners, you know, restaurant folks who were so scared. I mean, as I said, we didn't have any rules and they were crying and, and crying because, you know, their colleagues were dying. I mean, this is really, really serious stuff. And I realized so many people didn't have anyone to call. And that that was really why I was like, look, I, I need to be doing what I'm doing in a in a bigger market for more people. Really, ideally, it shouldn't just be me. It should be like a network of people. Everyone should have their own food journalist. But this seemed like a way to start. Um, and so I kind of pitched that to Substack and was selected for their Substack local program, which is a year-long grant uh, funding the launch of, of a newsletter doing local journalism like mine. Right. And, and I have to ask, first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about, um, you know, needing a place for people to call, it seems that the food section is a place, it's a community-based journalism. It is not necessarily listicles and luxury travel and et cetera. Like you really are on a mission to help the community, to serve the community, right? So I guess the question with that is, what is the community you cover? 13 states, 12 states? I'm making this up. Yeah, no, I think that's about okay. right. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I don't touch Texas or anything but the northern tip of Florida, right. which I'm covering only because as a reporter, you always hear about the great sunshine laws in Florida. You can get any government document you want. So for that reason, I slid in the very bit of a panhandle. Wow, but. sunshine laws drives <laughs> your journalism. I love this. Rarely do we yeah, speak with writers who care about sunshine laws <laughs> and food right. into that. So, I mean, right. talk about the the audience and what, who are you serving? Yeah, well, I'm hoping that I'm serving anybody who interacts with food in the South. So whether they're eating it, growing it, serving it, you know, making it, 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 it that's, that's who I'm hoping to serve. So as you say, it's not, I mean, I really try and not to run any story that you've seen somewhere else. The idea is that this is, yeah, things that, things that are part of people's everyday lives, but aren't necessarily going reported and certainly not in traditional food media. I agree in reading it, you know, I don't connect with all the stories and that's fine because I'm, I don't live in the yeah. South and, and I don't plant my flag there. Um, some of the stories I have looked at, you have covered like 
top steakhouses in the South and you do it in your own unique way. But you've also done some news reporting where you covered a sweet potato quilts initiative, which I thought was really great work. And then, of course, you have investigative work. So let's talk about a couple of the stories that you really are proud of. Um, You know, like I said, there there's a lot that I'm proud to do. I mean, we've already sp- talked about the pandemic a little bit. So, you know, I did have this story where I tried to figure out how many restaurant workers died of COVID, which was something that it turns out the states weren't counting. Um, so, you know, I'm not proud that I don't have a, I don't, I wasn't able to get a number. I'm not proud of that, but I'm proud that I asked um, because, you know, it was such, we're going to see situations like this again. And we know how the whole render restaurant industry was, you know, shaken up by everything that happened. I think it's important to know how many people we lost. Absolutely. That that number will come out hopefully in reporting um, over time and, and, and accurate reporting. Let's talk about that quilt festival or that, sorry, not quilt festival, that <laughs> quilt initiative. I, I Just talk about, it seems like it's the kind of story that you maybe only are finding in um, in rural parts of the South. Yeah. So I'm really doing it. So that one is out of Bardman, Mississippi, I believe, um, has had a sweet potato festival for quite some time. Um, and the quilting every year, there was a quilt, um, that they would auction off for charity and it's a, a quilt featuring sweet potatoes. And, and I crawl, I was trying to find, find the quilt or figure out where the quilt had come from. There was a little sweet potato mystery that I, I can allow. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe folks will go online and read it up, read up about it. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, that's the fun thing is I am delving into these cities and towns, hamlets, villages, you know, that, that nobody else is really going to. And while I'm not able to get to all of them physically every week, um, I do enough traveling. I've been to enough of these places that, you know, I can bring them up pretty confidently. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring up, um, Aunt Fanny's uh, cabin, um, in Smyrna, Georgia, you wrote a piece about the, the legacy, the, the troubling anti-black legacy of that restaurant and, you know, the community, um, you know, deciding or not deciding to shut it down. I won't paraphrase that much, but I want to hear about this story a little bit because I think that that one's a really important one to point out the work that you're doing there. Yeah, thank you. So that was a story, I mean, about stories I'm proud of. Um, So this was sort of bubbling up. I keep an eye on all sort of the like – I got a lot of Google alerts, honestly, you know, and so keep a keep an eye on like city council agendas and and things where there are food stories that haven't been recognized as such. So maybe it's like the suburban reporter at the AJC happens to mention that, you know, in the town of Smyrna, Georgia, they're considering the fate of Aunt Fanny's Cabin, which, as you said, was like the most notorious anti-black restaurant in the South, which is quite a claim considering all yeah. the anti-black restaurants we had and do have. Um, but I, I mean, it was really just um, atrociously and overtly racist. Um, and they had decided, and it, it is sort of a convoluted story, but uh, years ago they had moved the restaurant, which had ceased to be a restaurant, to the center of town to serve as a visitor center uh, because they just couldn't give the place. Oh, that's horrible. That's so horrible (laughs) to hear that. Yeah. So this was the welcome center. And so so here's where it gets interesting. So the local leadership in Smyrna, um, and I won't go into all the politics of the local leadership in Smyrna, but they decided they were going to tear down the building. And they made that decision without much local input, the feeling being on the part of the white leadership that this would be a decision hailed by the black community, um, which the white leadership of the town was not, um, they were, they had done a lot of things that the black community understandably was not too happy with. And so this was seen as sort of just a, you know, a sop to their, their community. Well, it turned out since they didn't ask, 
black community didn't want it taken down, or at least um, a segment of it didn't. Um, and so there is no, you know, there's no uh, uniformity of opinion in a, in a community of all these people. But there was a group that wanted to save the cabin, again, led by black women, wanted to save the cabin, both as a way to remember um, Fannie Williams, the black woman for whom the cabin had been named or the restaurant had been named, um, and in homage to all the many uh, black men and women who had worked there for many, many mm. years and to remember the labor and to not erase the racist past of Smyrna, Georgia. So, yeah, um, I mean, it, yeah. it's it's it really shows you how important journalism is, the, the act of journalism. When you, when you uh, look at something like the cabin, you're like, of course uh, – um, all in the black community want to have it torn down. Yep. But of course, if you unpeel the onion, you're like, you're like, wow, there's actually more there. Um, and this is a segue to kind of get to the real pickle with what you're doing, which is my perception is that you are self-funding all of this. It is funded through your subscribers and you just recently wrote, I'd call it a white paper about the future of the food section and I wanted to get, have you on this episode because previously in our, if we've gotten this far in the podcast episode, you've listened to an interview with Don Davis, who is the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, which is a, a different type of publication. But I wanted to get your take on how things are going with Substack. You have expressed some frustrations with the platform, this very buzzy, well-funded platform. Um, you've expressed some, um, optimism about the future of, of, and you have a path towards profitability or at least break even, but I wanted to, there's a lot to unpack, but Hannah, just tell me a little bit of what's going on with Substack and what you're thinking. Uh, yeah, I, well, I think, um, I did not appreciate when I took this offer from Substack, um, how much of publishing Substack is running a business, which would be obvious. But for folks who have not come up in the daily newspaper system may not know that there is a, you know, a hard divide between the business and editorial size. It certainly is traditionally and certainly at a paper that I worked as 212 years old. We had no idea what happened on the business side. <laughs> no idea. You didn't have time. So, I didn't have time. No, we were working 80 hours a week. I wasn't really learning about ad sales or anything like that. Um, and I, I should say, I'm not. I, we're not allowed to accept advertising as part of this this program. So we got to make money in other ways. Um, and so, yeah, to become a business owner overnight um, has given me a lot to talk about with other Americans because it seems to be that our country has an entrepreneurial streak. Um, I don't know that I do though. So it, it it's been interesting learning how to, you know, divide my time um, and make sure, as you say, that the journalism is funded, but that I also have time to do the journalism. So are they helping you um, get to profitability? Are they helping you? Um, are they mentoring you in a way that you can, um, you know, customer acquisition is important, getting people to pay either monthly or yearly is important. So I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think this is a kind of a new endeavor for all of us, you know, dozen of us who are in the program, who accepted the grant money. It's a new initiative for Substack. Um, and I think there are some, I won't go so far to say like a culture clash, but they gave us support in terms of journalism. Like they pay for, in addition to giving us this kind of seed money, they pay for transcriptions and they pay for um, my editor right now. So, you know, which is great. They were really helpful on the journalism front. Uh, there hasn't been any support on the business front. And so again, those of us who are all coming from journalism backgrounds, uh, it's been a lot. I bet. And and you have outlined what you need to happen by September 2020. Um, to honestly keep the lights on, it seems like. 
So I guess, um, what is that number and, and, and are you close to that number? I mean, it depends how you count these numbers are also small, honestly. And that's been something I've had to adjust to. Like, even though the Charleston Post and Courier is hardly, you know, a major media player, you're still talking about tens, if not hundreds of thousands of readers, you know, when you have a big story. Um, the numbers we're talking about here is I have 490 paid subscribers, right? And I need 680 to make this work. So... Sounds doable, but it's also like another third of what I've picked up so far. So. I'll say this. I mean, even if you don't live in this region, I think you've given Hannah's work, you can check it out or you can listen to this conversation and say like, if I'm somebody who, you know, donates to local NPR, who donates to local like charitable organizations that are doing good work and doing investigative work, if it's a research organization, journalism is part of the conversation, right? And so, yeah, like you might not necessarily know the in intricacies of this like small town in Mississippi that you're reporting on. Mm -hmm. You still can appreciate what the work you're doing. And I think getting 200 more subscribers by September, I mean, I wish you the best. I hope I can make that happen. <laughs> I mean, however possible, it seems like it's doable. Yeah, Matt, thank sure. you so much. I really appreciate that because, again, I mean, the idea of this, as I said at the outset, was not just me. You know, I don't want this to be a kind of substack that's just a vanity project. It's not really about what I'm doing or what I'm thinking. You know, I, I really mean to boost food journalism generally. So I, I would hope that anyone who's interested in that cause, which I think is important, uh, would check out the work. Absolutely. And it's clear that when I say you, it's like the publication uh, and not just you personally, but it, hardly a vanity project. I think most of these subsects are vanity products because the nature of it is written in, you're writing in first you're writing a personal letter to your readers and that's fine but there are there are a few of you and i wrote about in 2020 in the summer almost two years ago about this boom in food and i'll link to that in the show notes and that the article interviewed folks that you weren't around then but i think there were a lot of people who were doing it as a first person vanity project in a good way but this is different. This is like independent journalism. This is like grassroots. This is the stuff that we should be funding. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It really is different. And that's also been kind of a hurdle because with Substack, you know, a lot of people give it away for free. And it's because all that really goes into it is, you know, sitting at the keyboard for a few hours. And we already talked about like, this is paying for government documents. This is paying to travel. Like it's not free. It's actually journalism. So it, it comes with a cost. And it's a great read too. Like, let's be clear. It's not just like. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like there's real talent. You're, you're super talented. And, and I like, I like your approach because you, you, you know, you're, you're very interactive. You um, hosted, you're hosting events. You, when you launched, you went on a train tour. That was like really cool. And I know these are the type of things, this is like the small stuff that you got to do when you're launching something. Yeah, totally. And those have been super fun. You know, we've had, as you say, you know, like met up and, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the habit of buying subscribers wine. So that's a good thing if you want to subscribe. Like it, it's fun. Food is fun. And so, you know, I do feel like when I'm talking about the important work in the newsletter, I do tend to, you know, pivot to racism and the pandemic. And that is part of covering food right now. We're all doing it. But you know, there is a fun part to it too. So tell me, where are you traveling this summer? Where, where, where are you headed? Like what, what are some of your, I mean, 13 states, that's a lot of travel. It is a lot of travel. So my next big trip, I'm literally like looking at my calendar as I say this. Um, so I've got a couple of things coming up this month, but the one I'm super excited about is there was a project I had done at the Post and Courier where I found the best independent place to eat at every 
exit along Interstate 26. So if you were road tripping, it all had to be within five miles. There's a whole bunch of rules. But I felt like this is talk about service journalism. So I am headed out on I-95. Oh, wow. Big yeah. 95. <laughs> Big yeah. 95. So, That's like six lanes in some places, eight lanes. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. But I will be very much on the right-hand side because I'm getting off at every exit. Uh, and it's really fun. I just did some of the like introductory research for this. And I think there's a lot out there that people wouldn't expect. Yeah. So. And what states are those? Just a reminder, audience who maybe isn't. Yeah, it's it's a good question. So I'm starting, I assume if you're coming from DC, just have lunch there. So I'm starting in Petersburg, Virginia, yeah. and taking it down to Florence, South Carolina, which is basically like from 20 to 85. So it's two other, you know, extremes. Amazing. So Hannah, where do you want yeah. to be in five years? Like what, what's your vision? <laughs> I'll probably still be on 95. Oh, totally. <laughs> I'll still be, be driving. It's <laughs> right, funny. I'll be driving. Which is the funniest thing is that before I started this, I didn't even have a car. Uh, and now, like, the insurance rates have gone up. Uh, anyways, um, in five years, I mean, as I said, I would love to see this bigger than me. And I know I've said this a couple times. But, I mean, there are so many more stories to tell about food and food culture in the South. I can't do it alone. So I would love to be in a position to, you know, pay contributors fairly and have, you know, more voices as part of the food section. That would be great. I mean, it's there. Like, it's going to – I mean, you have all the the backing and the background. Um, we just, you know, more subscribers, more call to action. But it's going to happen. I, I respect Thank it you. big time. Oh, thank you. You're really sweet. No. Thank well, Hannah Raskin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, man, thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.